Well, it is a privilege to be back up here uh, with you again. I hope your summer is going well. And um, I'll take just a moment uh, before we turn to Mark chapter 5 and just share a couple of personal thoughts. Uh, first, um, I just want to publicly say thank you to a staff, a group of elders and deacons, and other leaders in this church who have done things and have shouldered weights over the last two years. Many of those things we will never know. But you have done well. Thank you. Um, I know that this week your shoulders got a little lighter. Um, as the counts arrived, and the counts' shoulders got a little heavier. Um, but um, God is able and sufficient, and um, you just need to know that uh, we are grateful for you and for the work that you've done um, over the last two years. So thank you for that. I'd also just continue to say thank you for the support that uh, Missy and I, our family, have received um, from this church, the friendships, uh, the conversations, just the encouragement. Um, we are, um, are just so thankful for what uh, God is doing uh, through the ministry, but also just uh, the opportunity to be here and to walk with you uh, on this journey of faith uh, that, we, that we are on. We are looking at Mark chapter 5. Um, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, but as we begin, as we get ready to dive in here, I wonder if you know what a master class is? Uh, I've never done one. I'm sure some of you have. Um, I'm sure some, some of you may be one of, the, one of the teachers. I don't even know that. Um, but a master class is one of those classes uh, where it gathers the world's best um, from anywhere in, in the world, and they come together with their knowledge and their stories and their expertise, and then they provide in a video series um, that class. So um, you can uh, go and you can let Alicia Keys teach you how to write a song and produce a song. You could do that. Some of you would be better at that than others, um, including myself. Ron Howard will teach you how to direct a movie, if that is something that you're just dying to know how to do. One of the newest ones is how to produce and put together your own TV miniseries. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you want to do that too. But you can pay somebody, you can go through a class, and evidently when you come out of this, then you know how to do those things. I want one that, that is not where I watch it. I want them to come to my house and teach me how to do a brisket. I want them to, to show me how to cut the meat and get it just right, because I don't want to go spend 80 bucks on a piece of meat to turn it into a piece of leather. I, I want them to show me how to do it so that it, 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 it works. I want the hands-on master class. You know what I'm saying? The original master class professor, teacher, we're going to read about him today. We're going to see him doing his thing. It began there on the shores of Galilee as he was walking along and he saw these fishermen. And he, and he goes to them while they're pulling their nets in and he calls them to follow him. 
And what you see through the gospel accounts and what we'll look at today in Mark is you see Jesus inviting these men, these fishermen, to follow him, and he is going to teach them what it means to be fishers of men, is what he says. I love that metaphor. It's such a great metaphor. I, I've got a lot of friends that are, are good fishermen. My, my son's a great fisherman. My dad loved to fish. I, I never was really that good. Still not. But, but the idea of, of fishing, I know this, is you, you throw in a hook with bait, it catches a fish, and you pull that fish out, and you remove it from the water, and you bring it into another realm. Preferably your plate. You know, Paul talks about that, that image of, of, of what it's like for us when he says that he has rescued us from a dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son who loves us. And what Jesus is doing is he's going to take these men with him and he's got a lot to teach them. And he's going to instruct them in what it looks like the master class of building a kingdom. And they, right there, become the seeds, the first seeds that are dropped in the ground of the Christian church. So that's why this passage applies to us today. Because Jesus, what he's teaching these disciples, we are in their shadow even as they are part of this, this, this whole incident that we're going to read about today. This section of Mark contains four stories. It begins at the end of Mark, and it goes through the end of chapter 5. Four stories where Jesus really kind of drills down, and he, and he, and he really wants to expose and, and, and show them who he is and really what he's come to do. And he wants to draw out some principles that are not going to be revolutionary for any of us today. But hopefully they will be good reminders as we take this passage and seek to apply it to our lives. So here we're going to read this passage. In the next few moments, we're going to concentrate on Jesus and what's, what's going on here. But um, look with me at the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to begin chapter 5, verse 1, and read our text. They, the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? 
He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he, Jesus, gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and towed it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Can I pray? God, we now come to this text and we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would use your words in the recording of your deeds to change us, to transform us, precisely where each of us needs to be changed and transformed. We pray this in your name. Amen. I wonder if you've had the experience of going to your mailbox and receiving a letter that has beautifully hand-scripted your name across the front with your address. And something begins to just kind of stir inside of you thinking, somebody has written me a letter. Somebody has taken time to write me a letter, and they've even done it in this beautiful lettering. And you can hardly wait, and you open it up, and you begin to read, and it's handwritten. It's a full-page, handwritten letter. And as you begin to read, Dear Brian, we are so pleased to have you in our community. We'd love to tell you about our insurance product. Or the new windows that they can fit you with. Or the lawn service, or whatever it would be. And there you have it, this beautifully hand-scripted letter that has been sent to you and every other neighbor. Right? It's personalized. It knows you. It knows everything about you. It knows that you just moved there. It knows that you're looking for somebody to help you with your yard work. It knows that you may need to replace your windows. It knows that you may need some new insurance. And all within the ease of a touch of a button, that letter can be printed out and sent directly to you. Individualized, right? 
so that you receive it with all the warm fuzzies that they intend. But you know what the individualized isn't? It's not individual. Because there's a distinction between being individualized and individual, right? Individualized isn't near as messy. (laughs) But what we find in this story is an individual encounter. It's an encounter that Jesus has with one individual. And it's anything but clean and nice and predictable. Look at this man and and, and consider this, this profile that Jesus has said to the disciples. If you go back at the beginning of the story previous where they get into the boat, Jesus says, come on, boys, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. So already Jesus has got something in mind that the disciples have nothing, have no clue about. But they get in this boat and they go through a storm to see this man. This man who's not named, but who has issues. Look at some of the issues that are laid out for us there in verses 3 through 5. This man, no doubt, has wrestled and struggled with being humiliated and shamed. I mean, if you're the disciples who do not show up at all in this story, okay, mind you, understand that. I think they don't have a clue what to say, all right? Because the first thing that happens is there's a naked man running to them, falling on his knees and screaming. That's that's how they're greeted. So you don't hear anything from the disciples, but they're there. Humiliated and shamed. The man has no clothes on. We don't know how long or what's been going on, but that's, that's just the start of it. He's also isolated and alone. He's been abandoned by friends, by family, by the community. They've they've pushed him off and said, go, get up there and go away. Outside of the city, in the tombs. He's uncontrollable. They've tried, but they've given up. He cannot be bound, not even by chains or shackles. The power is too great. He's unavoidable. You go to bed at night, and all you hear is this naked man in the tomb screaming and cutting himself. The distortion and the torment that this man knew inwardly and outwardly is unimaginable. This is probably, without doubt, the most graphic depiction of an individual we see in Scripture. But he's also unclean. By Jewish standards. He lives near a herd of pigs. He lives in the tombs among unclean bodies. And he's possessed by nearly 6,000 unclean spirits. A legion of them. But Jesus had an appointment to go see this man. And he brings these disciples. And he intentionally pursues this man. This man who's alone in his pain and his bondage. And if the storm's not enough, now the disciples are with Jesus dealing with this crazy dude that has no clothes on. 
they're already, the disciples are already asking, who is this man? That's, what, that's the way the last story ends. Who is this man that can say, be quiet to the waters, and it listens? But now this man is reaching out to the untouchables, the unclean. And why is Jesus doing this? Because this man is a human being that bears the image of his father. The thumbprints of his father are all over this man. Distorted, but all over this man. And Jesus wants this man, the disciples, and us today to understand that individuals are a big deal in his kingdom. A few months ago, I had a friend that took me and a group of about 30 of us through an exercise, and this is what he said. He said, I want you to think of three people that have been significant in your life. I want you to think of three events that have been significant in your life. And I want you to think of three books that have been significant in your life. And after you get that list of, of nine things written down, I want you to pick the top three of that list. And I want you to tell me what they are. And he began to get on the board and he began to tally. Person, event, book. You know what happened? Without an, even a challenge, overwhelmingly, the tally marks began to accumulate outside of what? People. People. A person might have invited you to an event. A person might have given you a book and said, hey, let's read this book together. But people showed up more often, no comparison than anything else. Many of you are here today because your lives have been shaped because somebody took a personal interest in you. They saw you. And they pursued you. Those who study our culture have been describing for some time our current state and culture as being post-Christian. Which basically means this. That there is a culture that has emerged as the Christian culture and Christian faith has lost coherence, connection, or consistency within the society that has been largely shaped by Christianity. Does that make sense? So growing up in a, in a Christian, I would say subculture, there's, there's, there's another culture that's emerged that's emerged because Christianity has lost the ability to connect. It's lost its relevance. And so now we have a culture across the world that's called post-Christian. Here's my question. It's not much different than the culture that Jesus was dealing with here. In fact, I'd say it's a little more extreme, the culture that Jesus is dealing with. But what's the answer for the church 
to this post-Christian culture that we live in now. You may have all kinds of answers, but I'm going to tell you this. If it does not include individuals, then we've started on the wrong foot. Andy Crouch is one of my favorite authors. And he tells a story about having been in meetings all day. And he goes to O'Hare Airport and he has two hours to kill before he takes his flight. And he says, what am I going to do for two hours? And he knows that he hasn't had his exercises, so he determines that what he's going to do is he's going to walk through whatever set of terminals he's in, and, and evidently you can walk for a long time there. And so he takes off, and he begins to walk. But he says, what I'm going to do on this is I'm going to intentionally put to practice something that I've been reading about. And he's been reading in the Hebrew Bible about this thing called the image of God. And he says, what I'm going to do is I walk through each terminal, and as I come in contact with each individual, is I'm going to say, image bearer to myself. He said, I'm not going to be creepy and weird, but I'm just going to, to myself, make a note and say, image bearer. So he begins, and as he walks, you can imagine the number of different individuals and different types and professions and situations that he comes across, but to every one of them, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. This is what he says. He says, by the end of my walk, I had passed people in every stage of life and health of an uncountable number of national and ethnic backgrounds, some traveling together, mostly seeming alone. The stories I would never learn behind each one of those faces, the years of life that had shaped their posture or their gait, the possibility and futility each one had known and would know, all set to the relentless soundtrack of those two words, image bearer, carried an emotional and spiritual weight that I can still feel years later. He said, this exercise was an attempt to actually behold and name the dignity of each person that he passed or encountered. And when I read that story, I thought about the opportunity that we have as a local church in a community to do the same thing. To behold the dignity and the humanity and the image bearers that we run with, that we work with, that we play with, that we go to ball games with, that we employ, that we work for. Image bearers. We all have our own individual story. And I know for me, I spend a whole lot of time worrying about everybody else's story and how come it's going that way for that, st- that person. But if the individual story means anything, it means that God's got you on your own individualized learning program. And that what works for Brian number two doesn't work for Brian number one. Right? But I got a lot of grief and a lot of pain, a lot of frustration and anger and resentment in my life because I've wondered, God, why did you do that to me? They didn't have to deal with that. (laughs) And I've forgotten. 
he's not dealing with me as some standardized test or program or whatever. It's individualized. It's hands-on. Some times a little more hands-on than I'd like for it to be, to be honest. That's the way he rolls. What else do we see here in this passage? We see that it's personal, but we also see that he's able to walk into these big, crazy messes and situations because he possesses a power and authority that is greater than the deepest need that is being presented. I'm going to skip verses 6 through 9. We'll cover those some other time or we can talk about them over lunch and jump straight to the pigs because, quite honestly, that's all you want to know about, right? What about the pigs? It's got to be the most famous group of pigs there are in the world. We've got 2,000 pigs, y'all, running down a, down a mountainside into a lake and drowning. You've got to do something with the pigs. But Jesus doesn't really help us here in this passage, does he? He just kind of leaves it right there. But I think that as we piece together the story of Jesus that we know on this side of the event, there are things that we can say of what Jesus may be teaching and may be instructing these disciples and helping them to see. Kind of like pulling back that curtain, you know, like he does so often. Pulls back the curtain and says, I'm going to show you something. You're probably not going to catch it, but I'm going to pull it back and I'm going to show it to you anyway. So these are the couple of things that I think he, he pulls back the story and, and, and wants to teach us. When we see the death and the destruction of the pigs, I think that Jesus is revealing to us the true intention of sin and evil. That's not real genius. I, I think that's pretty clear in the passage, that when you see what the demons do to the pigs, that was what their intention was for the man. Jesus just got there in time to stop that. It's a graphic depiction Right there in front of the crowd, in front of the herdsmen, in front of the disciples, and in front of the man. The destruction. And the purpose of sin and evil, make no mistake, is destruction. (laughs) That's where it's going. Steal, kill, and destroy. C.S. Lewis, the British writer, says this of sin, It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. The slow, gradual, he doesn't care. Time's okay. Whatever it takes. But what we, rest, what we realize in this passage is that Jesus shows up at this right time. This man is rescued from his tragic end. And that sin is real. And that evil is real. And that no human power can deal with it. But there's a power that can deal with it. I don't think Jesus had to explain what the, what the point of this was to those people standing around there. I think they got it pretty clearly. Sin and evil aren't something to be messed with. Unless you're Jesus. <laughs> or you've got Jesus with you. But I think there's something else that shows up here, and I'm going to do my best to try to explain this. If I don't do a good job, again, let's grab lunch, and, and I'll, I'll give it another shot, but... I'm literally, literally still working this out even as we sing songs this morning. 
Because I think what happens here is Jesus restrains himself. I think he has all the power and the authority to do whatever he deems necessary and wants to do. But I think he restrains. I know he does. He restrains, and he doesn't use the full force of his power and authority in this situation. Jesus here reveals that death and destruction are the purposes of sin and evil. But he does not put an end to the sin and evil for good. He does for that one moment in that one situation. But when those disciples leave there and when Jesus leaves there, sin and evil are still going to be running rampant. Why didn't he deal with that? Well, hang on. So this is, this, is, this is what I think Jesus is getting at. This is, this is where I am on this one. I think Jesus is saying to the disciples, I have invited you, called you to follow me. I want you to trust me. I've got power and authority that you don't know anything about. I've got so much under the hood here. You, you just stay with me. I'm, I'm worthy of your trust. But you, I, I get it, you don't know that yet. You're a little slow, I get that. But just stay with me. And as he comes to deal with this sin and evil, we cre- we've created this term theologically called the already and the not yet. And Jesus puts these disciples squarely in the middle of the already and the not yet. Okay, he can deal with these demons then why didn't they deal with this other thing? Well, he's going to. But they don't know that yet. That's the not yet. But even more so, isn't it exactly where you are today? (laughs) Between the already and the not yet. We're not waiting for the cross to happen. It's already happened. And it's the cross that gives us that divine receipt that says... This is where it's all headed. I've got it all taken care of. I have taken the stinger out of death. I've taken the power away from sin and evil. I've dealt with that. We know that from the cross. But we live in this tension. And we look around. We go, God, come on. How do we live in that tension of not yet, yet? And I think that's where we learn from the disciples. It's no different. We are still invited to trust Him and to believe Him. I mean, we just sang a song. Where did I put my bulletin? We sang a song, and we're doing it every time we sing a song, y'all. Every time we sing a, a song in here, we are, we are, we are saying, I, I understand I'm in the, in the tension of the already and the not yet. When we said, my sin was great, your love was greater. Boom, right there. We're square in the middle of it, aren't we? Because I wonder, I wonder, is your grace big enough? Is your love really big enough? When we say, you have no rival, You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. I wonder, God, there's a man over in Russia. I don't know about that. 
This economy, I mean, God, really? Really? And we're square in that tension. When, 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 when our teenager turns off the location app, we don't know where they are. And they're late. We're there. When the doctor says one more test, or when my mom is struggling to figure out what's going on with her, her health and she can't get answers and she's waiting and it's a week and it's two weeks and it's three weeks and it's four weeks. Symptoms are still there. Okay, God, you've got the power, you've got the authority, I know it, but I'm here. When you give up a career and you move here to get a degree and then you can't get a job and you're waiting and you're waiting and nobody seems to want to employ you, where are you? You're right in the middle of that tension. <laughs> I mean, do I need to go on? The tensions are real. And Jesus says, listen, if you will hang on, if you will hang on, there's a day coming. And in that day, it'll all make sense. I don't know how. I don't know when. And I don't know why it makes us wait. But I know I pray a lot more, which seems to be important to him. All right, I'm going to skip the third point. What's the application of this tension thing? What's the, what's the application of the fact that Jesus restrains his power and authority? How do we use our power and any authority that we might have? If you are in a position where you have the capacity to do meaningful action, what do you do or not do that makes a meaningful difference in the world around you? Teachers and nurses have authority in the classroom and in the hospital. Plumbers have authority with pipes. Landscapers have authority with plants and mulch. Pilots with airplanes. Librarians with books. Electrical engineers can read a circuit diagram and understand how it works and how to make it work better. Some of you can walk into a meeting and those present know your name, they know your character, and they know what your record is. Others have the expertise and the authority over an instrument. When you have authority, you can ask, command, or even imply that something should be done and it will be done. For Jesus, his meaningful action is when he lays aside his power and his authority and gives up his life for the sake of those who are unable to save themselves. His meaningful action is when he serves. And when you do the same, you are a participant in that bigger and more beautiful story. Point three. Individuals, he restrains his power, but he always has a purpose. He is always getting to the other side of something, right? Look at verse 15. The city returns 
And what do they find there? They find this man who they know very well who it is sitting with clothes on, thankfully, and in his right mind. And they are afraid and they tell Jesus to leave. That's perhaps the most tragic part of the story is that right there in front of them, the one that can bring peace to them in their time of need is the one they're asking to leave. So what does Jesus do? He leaves. But before he leaves, he steps into the boat and the man says, I want to go with you. And then Jesus, once again, does something that we don't expect and says, no, I want you to stay. And I want you to stay, and I want you to go tell your friends and everybody in this town what the Lord has done and how he has shown his mercy to you. And he goes, and he begins to do it. And you can go read chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, and find out what happens the next time Jesus comes to town. But that's for another time. Why is Jesus, the master teacher, doing this? What is he trying to show the disciples and us today? He pursues individuals made in the image of his Father. They witness his power, but they also begin to see the scope and the magnitude of this thing that they've gotten themselves involved to called this kingdom. And they see the kind of people he uses, like demon-possessed men that are now made right, who's going to have to spend a lot of time in counseling, y'all. Okay, like He is not ready to go. But Jesus turns him loose on the streets of that little region. And everywhere he goes, he is nothing but an announcement that there's a God who can change me. There's a God who's bigger than my failures. There's a God who's bigger than my shame. There's a God who's bigger than this legion of demons. God still uses individuals like that for his kingdom work. But Jesus also left a trophy of grace in a Gentile region. He left the Jewish homeland, crossed the ocean, a lake, and went to this region that was Gentiles. And Jesus commissions this Gentile convert to be a Gentile missionary to a Gentile people. You see what he's doing? Jesus is doing this because this is what his father wanted him to do. This is what his father said I was going to do. He said, I am going to, yes, I'm going to use individuals equipped with the power that they're given through my spirit to draw all people to me, even Gentiles of which I'm pretty sure we all qualify for. God uses stories of individuals, not of perfect living, but a life where the gospel light shines through the cracks and the crevices of our lives to the lives around you. And local church becomes God's tool, His instrument that reaches into the cracks and crevices of a community and society, and it happens in many ways. 
Let me tell you the story of one of my friends and the way it happened for them. He said he, I talked to him, I said, tell me the story one more time. And he told me, he said, so, okay, so Brian, we were getting ready to have a leadership meeting one night. He said, you know how hard it is to get all the leaders there for a meeting. He said, they were all there. And no sooner had we sat down than the door slings open and John, this slender, speckled-wearing, unkept, black-haired guy, bleeding and hobbling in on a crutch because he'd just been hit by a car, walks in the door. So my friend's kind of frustrated because he's got his group there and he's ready to do his agenda thing and now he's got to deal with a mercy situation. So he goes and he calls John to his office and John comes in and he says, what can I do for you? Do you need some money? Do you need some food? And the man meekly expressed the question of his heart. He says, I don't want a handout, and I don't want any food or money. Could you just speak to me if I was a human? He had been abused as a child, treated like an object to be discarded most of his life, and he had tried to kill himself by throwing himself in front of a car right before he walked through that door. It was obvious, he said, that he was broken and sinful and messed up in many ways, but God used him to remind us, that church, of our concealed sin and brokenness. We were just as much in need of God's grace as him, and by God's grace, the Lord slowly brought healing and redemption to John and our church to treat everyone as if they were human. A glorious ruin. I said, what happened to John? Did John stick around? He said, yeah. He said in the back corner for about a month, and he said then some of the members started sitting with him, and then he moved to the middle, and then he started getting involved in church, and then he graduated from his, 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 his AA group, and he became a Christian. He said he healed physically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. What does Jesus do when he invites those disciples to come and follow him and go to the other side? He goes and he lets people know that you're never too far away to receive his grace and you're never too needy to be out of the reach of his grace. Maybe you fall in one of those categories this morning. But he also gives these disciples what they are going to need. He gives them this truth that individuals matter. Don't forget that. And I'm going to give you a power. Remember he says that in Acts 1.8 and at the end of Luke he says that. He's going to give you his spirit to go. And that he will... Not if, maybe, thinking about it, he is going to bring redemption to the nations. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to do it through you. Let's pray. Father, we hear this passage. It's a lot, and we're tempted to not believe. Um, So we ask you to help us. 
We thank you that we follow you, the one who is perfect in word and deed, so that we don't have to be. Take our stories. Continue to make them beautiful. Use them to bring wholeness to the people that we are brought in contact with each day. In your name I pray. Amen.